This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. And Richard Watts with you here on Smart Arts. And my first guest for the morning has joined us in the studio. Alice Lee Holland is the Artistic Director of the Australian Youth Dance Festival, which is happening in Melbourne from the 7th to the 12th of July and bringing in youth dance companies from across Australia and indeed around the world. Alice, welcome to Triple R. Thanks for having me this morning. Very great pleasure. Thanks for coming in on such a wet and miserable day. It's a little bit wet out there. Yeah, I'm kind of expecting <laughs> half my interviews to ring up and say, let's do a phoner today. But, yeah. <laughs> so you've been involved with the, the dance sector for a long time, including leading a, a dance company, a youth dance company over in WA. Yep. Why is dance such a significant and important art form for young people in particular? Oh, for young people. I mean, I think dance is a, a really important art form for all people. Um, I guess young people, um, are, you know, obviously part of that. Uh, the youth dance sector um, really focuses on an experience of um, a genuine contemporary dance practice which is so much about collaboration and creation uh, there's physical action empathy um, a sense of belonging and inclusion um, and so I think yeah it's um, you know dance is one of those incredible art forms that just it's not only about the physicality but the deep experience of the, the, the human being inside it and what better experience for our young people to have. Yeah and certainly the notion that dance is, is as you say such a collaborative art form uh, is I think a really valuable thing for young people to explore particularly in a festival like this where there are kind of uh, young dancers coming from from Ghana, from Denmark, from the UK, for example. So it, it's not just about an artistic experience, it's a cultural experience and uh, uh, an experience in, I guess, building and understanding people, building relationships and understanding people from different parts of the world. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and they um, through their experience, they're really ready to kind of connect with each other and come up with new ideas. And um, the you know the the Australian Youth Dance Festival is, has existed for twenty years, um, and this is the first time that it's international. And so what it's always done is bring together young people who are like minded in their um, openness and appreciation of the world. And this time the festival as you say, brings in these international dancers. And so the world is kind of, while it's getting bigger, it's also getting smaller for them. And that's really beautiful. And what kind of dance are we talking about here? Because I think often if you talk about young people and dance, some people might go, oh, uh, is it hip hop? Or maybe maybe they're crumping or <laughs> kind of... But yeah. we're talking a, a broad range of, of dance forms and styles, presumably, but with a focus on contemporary dance practice. Yeah, that's right. I mean, really, the festival is centred around youth dance practice. And, and people go, what is that? Is that just young people dancing? And, and really the answer is no, not necessarily. Youth dance practice is a sector of the uh, professional contemporary dance industry. Uh, and so really what makes it different is that the focus is on creation and collaboration. So while there's a lot of dance experiences for young people out there um, uh, that are about skills development and training, um, this is much more about a rich and deep experience of uh, genuine contemporary dance practice. And that's that's a really interesting world to be living in. And when we use the word practice, we're not talking about people just practicing a skill to get better at it. 
No, no. That, yeah, that's that's right. We're, we're talking about that that experience um, uh, of living um, living the thing rather than kind of practicing to do it later, and that's kind of really key actually in youth dance uh, youth dance practice. We don't treat young people; they're not treated as people who are getting ready to be good. We treat them as um, whole human beings who already have a lot to offer, and we ask them to bring that artistry into the studio um, and share that with each other and you know experience or practice um, that that mode of kind of collaboration and, and creation now the young people who are going to be coming to the festival where are they from are we talking uh, kids who are currently doing uh, contemporary dance uh, in secondary school here in Melbourne for example are we talking people who are maybe involved with a youth dance company in Canberra or Perth Yep. So the uh, festival is bringing together a bunch of youth dance companies uh, from around Australia. So we've got QL2 in Canberra, uh, Stompen from Launceston, Tasmania. Uh, there's representative from Drill in Hobart. We've got Wagoner and Dust from the Blue Mountains, Fling from uh, New South Wales and Flipside, uh, and Yellow Wheel from here in Melbourne, uh, and Origins Dance Company. So the youth dance companies are coming from uh, mostly the eastern side of Australia. Uh, and there's some independent kind of dances and representation there too. But we've also got these incredible dancers coming from companies in Denmark, Finland, uh, Ghana, Singapore, um, Scotland, England. I think that's probably about it uh, at the moment. Um, yeah, and they're coming from these companies, you know, that exist as... Um, as real companies, so again, it's not a not so much about a studio training um, that prepares them for competitions or examinations, but they're they're companies that focus on the creation of new work with young people at the centre. Uh, having seen uh, the work of some of those companies that you named. Uh, Stompen, for example, uh, in Launceston. I've seen their performances a couple of times and often cite specific work, for example, and you know, working with young people to hone their artistic skills, to encourage them to choreograph work on themselves and on their peers. So we're very much talking about the creation of art by young people. A hundred percent, yeah. It's a real focus on the art form rather than the dance style and that's really kind of what sets it apart. And yes, yeah, Stompen's work is, is so, so incredibly beautiful site-specific work. All the companies are slightly different. Wagoner is run, um, it's a First Nations company uh, and um, we have QL2 which is one of our longest standing companies run by artistic director Ruth Osborne who started Steps Youth Dance Company in Western Australia which I then was a member of and became the artistic director of. So youth dance has been around kind of for 30 years, a little bit more than 30 years I guess um, but yeah we're still kind of trying to create um, a space for it that really represents, uh, tells people the story about what it is and we're hoping that the festival will will really do that. How strong would you say the, the youth dance sector is? Because looking at the, the youth art sector more broadly, the, the youth circus sector seems to be really alive and vital and, and punching kind of well above its weight. Youth theatre is certainly very strong. Uh, where do you see kind of the youth dance sector fitting into the mix? I think it's still finding its feet um, and, and that's not because the, the passion and the strength of the companies themselves and the directors and the people who are so invested are, um, are they're, they're doing an incredible job. It's difficult. Um, it's difficult. I think dance out of all of the art forms is 
you know, arguably the most humble. (laughs) We're not very good at telling our own story. It's a bit of a silent art form, you know, traditionally. And we really try to work to break those things, you know, in contemporary dance and and in this experience of youth dance. Um, But but it's tricky. Uh, It's tricky to kind of fight for the the level of uh, funding investment that is required to really to create the kind of work that the the investment in youth theatre, for example, is managing to do. Um, So it's, it's a tricky one. Yeah. As an art form, also contemporary dance can can be a little bit intimidating or a little <laughs> yeah. bit scary for people yeah. as well. They they yeah. just the, the sheer fact that the word contemporary is there. People go, am, am I going to be watching somebody twitching their left arm for half an hour yeah. and, and that's it? Yeah, that's right. And what what happens is. Um, uh, actually, the youth dance. What the the work that youth dance companies are creating is generally really, uh, you know, uh, it's a, it's an awful word to be using, but it's a little more accessible um, because it is created in part by by young people, uh, and the audiences are friends and family of those young people. So it's a real gateway towards into the industry, and um, and a real way to develop the art form. So it's a really vital part of the sector. Yeah. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Alice Lee Holland, who's the Artistic Director of the Australian Youth Dance Festival, which is running in Melbourne from the 7th until the 12th of July with young dancers from around Australia and indeed around the world. So, Alice, we've got a range of events as part of the festival. So there's public performances, there's also workshops for the young people who are participating in the festival, uh, and there's even a think tank program for kind of artistic leaders as well. Yeah, that's right. So the Youth Dance Dance program is is kind of the centerpiece. I guess it runs for the five days of the festival, uh, and it's a mixture of workshops led by really incredible artists. Uh, Anthony Hamilton from Chunky Move is one of our one of our guest facilitators. We've got Dan Riley, who's come from Bangara Dance Theatre and is now at Ilbidri, uh, and James O'Hara, who's coming in to teach us. Um, who's been with a city lovey Chikawi for over a decade in Europe um, and actually what's beautiful is that many of those leaders are coming from youth dance backgrounds themselves. James was a member of STEPS, Dan was a member of QL2 uh, which is which is really special. Alongside that or as part of that program we've got the youth dance forums which um, uh, address kind of a couple of really key topics about dance, um, young people in dance and how to how to make our way forward. Um, one of those is focused on, uh, it's called technology versus the body. And it's about in our kind of shifting world, what is the value of dance uh, and how necessary is it in this increasing isolation? Um, and as we, as you said, we have the Think Tank program as well for professional artists, um, which has a number of keynotes and masterclasses and is really an opportunity for those people to share their experiences. And then we have the gala performances, which run on Wednesday and Thursday evenings at the Meat Market. That's the 10th and the 11th of July, which will really be a showcase of the work of the companies that are, are from Australia and around the world. So that's that's promising to be really special. And for people listening who maybe a parent is listening who's going, oh, my kid loves to move, maybe I could get them involved in something like this. The festival is certainly a great way to come along and find out uh, the kind of range and styles of work being made by companies and to then start to build contacts with some of the local youth dance companies like Yellow Wheel, for example. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really good uh, look into what the priorities are for us. It's quite a different offer um, to that kind of uh, training or focus on outcome. This is really about process and creation and collaboration uh, and a rich experience 
experience of our, our really special industry. Now, the Australian Youth Dance Festival is being hosted by Ausdance Victoria uh, and Ausdance is the kind of peak body for uh, for dance in the country. Federally, Ausdance uh, kind of uh, got defunded a couple of years ago, which is a bit of a challenge. Ausdance Victoria, Ausdance New South Wales, fighting on and doing great work. So great to see them hosting this festival. As you said, it's a biennial festival. What's its legacy going to be? Oh, this this year's festival. Oh, it's a pretty special one with this international aspect. And so, I mean, the legacy is always the network um, that that is created. Uh, the young people. Again, the people coming attending this festival this year uh, as our professional artists came through those festivals years ago and had their own experiences and they remember the people they met. Um, so really the, the friendships uh, and the professional networks that the young people kind of create through this festival will be part of it. Um, we really hope to to blow their minds and, and, and explode the world for them and make them go, oh my gosh, there's this huge wide world out there of of dance, but also creative thinking and also internationally, I want to go visit you and I want to come and, you know, see where you live and experience dance on, on your side of the world or your part of the world. And so um, really the legacy is, is about the future. <laughs> If you want to learn more about the Australian Youth Dance Festival, you can jump online, www.ausdancevic.org.au forward slash A-Y-D-F. So ausdancevic.org.au forward slash A-Y-D-F for more info. I've been talking with the festival's artistic director, Alice Lee Holland. Alice, Alice, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Three Triple R. Now, Brisbane is an interesting city, not only home to great bands like the Goonsacks and many others, but it's also arguably one of the great circus cities of the world. There's a lot of circus companies to have come out of Brisbane. One of them is Company Two, uh, who are collaborating with Circus Oz on a brand new show. I'm joined by Circus Oz Artistic Director. Rob Tanian and from Company 2, Kane Peterson. Guys, welcome to Triple R. Thanks, Richard. G'day. So, Rob, you've, as Artistic Director of the company, you've been very focused on diversifying the output of Circus Oz, kind of shaking up uh, both touring models and presentation models and doing a lot of collaboration with yep. other artists. Why did you want to collaborate with Company 2? With two? Company 2. Um, listen, I uh, I, um, I've been very interested in the work Company 2's presented. Um, I, I think I first saw something back in um, I don't know, around 2011, 2012, and I really loved this kind of the, the vibe, the theatricality, as well as the great skills. So I've, I've been kind of, you know, hawkeyeing them for a long time. And, and then um, when I came in as the AD of Circus Oz, we, uh, I had a look at kind of five companies that I'd like to... Um, collaborate with potential collaborations and um uh company two is one of them and this so this uh collaboration we're doing right now on wonder age has been really uh, almost three years um in the in i guess in the you know from the romance phase to the uh you know let's 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 just go out for a weekend to okay let's commit to a little bit of a relationship so it's been really great yeah um and i guess the same question uh, came for you. Why did Company 2, as a kind of smaller, kind of agile, more independent circus company, want to collaborate with a, a kind of circus <laughs> juggernaut <laughs> kind of, like, uh, like Circus Oz? Oh, I think it's, it's more about access to, to everything that Circus Oz can bring. Like the, the thing about an independent company is that you, you are limited to what you, what, what you can put on 
you know, budget restraints and financial restraints. So when you collaborate with something like Circus Oz, you know, a major arts organisation, you can really push your limits. And I think that's that the best part about this marriage and this show is that we can really push barriers of of what we couldn't possibly do on our own. And when we're talking about pushing barriers, we're also presumably talking about pushing art form barriers and what, so taking some of the, the aesthetic of Company 2 and the, the skill of Circus Oz and vice versa mm-hmm. and mashing it up, what, what's evolving out of that? Um, look, uh, it's primarily a high-wire, sh- uh, high tight-wire show um, where we've made a promenade performance, so a no-seated version of... Um, of a show that runs for just over 60 minutes um, in the meat market. So really taking the experience away from the, you know, dare we say passive um, seated experience into a little bit more of a a walk around and experience how close or how far. Uh, As I I found out last night, some people really just want more distance and other people really want to get up close. Um, So, yeah, how how do people want to choose to experience circus? Quite often we are, I guess, barriered by um you know stages and um and uh, you know the seating banks or seating plans so um here with a lot of safety um considerations being factored in about how we move the audience what are the safe barriers who's who's how we're guiding them through the show um it's been a really i think for for oz it's been a really great experience to collaborate with with um company two in this um i guess on this journey about how can we how can we look at a, a circus show that's theatrical, poetic, beautiful, um, immersive to a certain degree in in its um, setup and spacing, um, and it brings the best out of both companies. Mm. I'm thinking if uh, if it's promenade, then one of the the risks is that, and if it's high wire, audiences <laughs> might want to actually stand directly underneath it, look straight up, and potentially have a circus performer fall on them. Is that one of the <laughs> one of the things you've had to think about? I, oh, it's certainly something that we thought about, but uh, invariably, when you see something dangerous, you, you, you either want to you know run in and help, or you want to stand back and make sure that you're not getting in in, in harm's way uh, of the performer or the or, or yourself. And and with a high wire, you don't want to stand underneath it because you don't want to distract the performer. And it's interesting. Last night, there was a few people that stood there and then that a moment of realisation uh oh she's coming towards us and they just disperse straight away mm. so and of course the acrobats are you know they're trained professionals they know exactly what's going on and what they're doing so you know they're aware of what can happen but yeah, yeah. The, perce- the perception of risk is always the <laughs> is the beauty no for people particularly Melbourne audiences who maybe aren't familiar with Company 2 mm-hmm. as a circus organisation what's yeah. the aesthetic that the company has and is that something that is helping shape this collaboration yeah well Company 2 I mean we ideally try to push barriers and try and push convention that that otherwise um, um, you don't see anywhere else and and I think uh, the aesthetic is usually uh, of nostalgia of of a a time gone by and having said that there's been shows that have been pushing to a time that 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 may become so um, I I think playing within those realms um, and bringing Circus Oz into the mix it means that I mean we can really really um, like bring that bring that to life that and, and in this show, nostalgia is probably the probably the word I'd say. Yeah, and yeah. And, and of course, you know, inherently, um, that marries with the nostalgia of Circus Oz as well. You know, uh, uh, you know, quite often 
you know, when I talk to people from the public or people from, um, you know, who've known the company for a long time, there is a sense of, you know, people go, oh, yeah, I remember seeing that, you know, the first show I ever saw was in, you know, 1983. And so there's quite often a reference of nostalgia. Um, but I, I feel like this show really embraces, you know, that sense of nostalgia. So we can take... Um, yeah, and of course, you know, founding members like Tim Colwell, who are you know synonymous with um, you know tight wire stunts, yeah. high wire stunts. There is, I guess, a, a you know, there's a salute to to um, those members n- in a nostalgic sense that um, you know we're referencing a, an art form um, that really was their realm. Hmm. Uh, it's kind of ironic, Rob, that your last show with Circus Oz, <laughs> given that you fought to escape the, the, the constrictions of nostalgia and tradition which hmm. uh, the company has had, that, yeah, your final show, you've em- you're embracing nostalgia wholeheartedly. Maybe it's acceptance, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, but done, I, I'd say the great thing is it's been done in a different way. Um, the uh, Obviously, the... The uh, co-director here is um, Chelsea McGuffin, who I really rate as one of the world's best um, circus directors. So for Mm. me, it's been an incredible journey to go on, um, not only beside her, with her, um, as a you know, as a a peer, but as as someone who's really got a different take on circus. So bringing that nostalgia or or take on nostalgia is, um, yeah, it's it's really been embedded by what her vision of. of that world is so mm. now the title of the show is wonder age uh, a play on underage but also kind of evoking a sense of wonder as well mm-hmm. which is certainly one of the the emotions that i always associate with circus sitting there wondering a how they can do that b can they pull it off c oh my god what happens if <laughs> uh, and then just kind of generally kind of gasping in delight uh Given that there's a focus on aerial acts in this mm. show, uh, if you and kind of uh, slack wire, high wire, mm. what, what more will people be actually seeing? What kind of kind of give us a, a sense of kind of what people will be gasping at when they come along to see this show? I think I think like for me, for in circus, um, uh, you, you see people pushing the limits, but then pulling back for the shows. Like you always, you always, you you, you in training, you go. Ten times further, and then you pull back when you get on stage because you don't want to uh, push those limits. But in this show, the, these acrobats are so highly trained that that you we really are pushing the barriers mm-hmm. of stunt, like, uh, um, but done so beautifully and so well with Rob and Chelsea that that you don't uh, you get this sense of awe of what you're seeing is quite spectacular, but it, within the realms of, of of the show, so it doesn't you don't stand there and go, oh, I must clap this now. You just stand there going gobsmacked, really. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, when we're, we're talking about obviously we're talking about tight wire and high wire as being the principal um, not only aesthetic, but um, technique that's in the show, but there is chi- um, uh, like a Chinese pole, there's a shoulder pole act in the show, uh, there's um, a balance bike, there's someone riding a bike on the high wire, um, there's also uh, an act, a very kind of static, it's very dense, all, all I can say the word is dense, there's a very <laughs> tense and dense um, uh, acro balance kind of trio that happens on top of a three metre high platform, which takes... Yeah, it takes a. It's for me. It's one of the hardest ones to watch and the <laughs> hardest ones to be anywhere near. Um, but we've got, but I have to say the design of the sh- of the space has been really fantastic. So Michael Baxter has done a beautiful design um, where we've got massive chunks of you know uh, great bluestone holding up um, uh, 
uh, tight wires. There's a giant flatbed truck which um, has the band on it. Um, amazing costumes by Harriet Oxley. Um, the musical director is Grant um, Arthur. Arthur, who who has a, a really great take on. Um, you know, there's a lot of string band uh, banjos and mandolins and um, slide guitars and drums with Bonnie and vocals. So it's yeah, the whole kind of. I say not it's not only the skill, it's the aesthetic and how it's all been wrapped up is is the journey. Kane, was there any worry uh, going into this collaboration that Company Two would lose something of their their identity or their autonomy in collaborating with kind of a major performing arts company like Circus Oz? Of course, there's always like concerns, but I think with Rob and, and with Chelsea, and, which have been more part of that that dialogue, I've been a little bit part of that dialogue too, but. Um, I mean, there's such a, a, a good give and take and push and pull that that, that was never going to happen, I don't think. Mm. I think between Rob and Chelsea as individuals as opposed to, you know, Company 2 and Circus Oz, they, they're, they're very, they're very um, collaborative and, and, and it's full credit to that because the show does represent both companies very strongly. And no, I, I don't think that that's the case and I think it's, um, it's a really good thing. Yeah, I, I think the hardest learning curve is... Um, Probably uh, for an independent company coming to work with us, all you know, all of a sudden, the, all the protocols and all the procedures and all the extra things which we need to do, and I'm really, you know, I I'm glad that we do and I embrace that we do them. But you know, even for myself, when I first started with the company, I was like, oh really? We've got it, you know, it's it's almost like you know, triple signing that form. But actually, the the size and scale of 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 um, circus size we require you know we're kind of required to do those things so um, I th- I'm sure that can be slightly frustrating at times. Mm. I'm speaking with Rob Tannion who's the artistic director of Circus Oz and Kane Peterson from independent uh, circus company Company Two. The companies have collaborated on Wonder Age, uh, which is on from today the 20th through to the 30th of June at the Meat Market in North Melbourne. I'll give all the booking details as usual at the end of the interview. But there's a couple of other things I wanted to unpick and explore, one of which, Kane, is just why the hell is Brisbane such an exciting city for contemporary circus? There's a hell of a lot going on there. Yeah, you've got Company 2. Yeah. You've also got Cassis. You've got Briefs. You've got Circa. Circa. Mm-hmm. Kind of, what is it about Brisbane that has made all of this circus activity possible i think it's the weather hurricane <laughs> 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 train 24 <24/7. laughs> 7 and out in a park <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. That's, well, you wouldn't that's want to be training outdoors in melbourne today, <laughs> that's for sure well, well look look how do you how do you build uh, such a such a hub um and and it all comes from uh i, I think comes from a great space and which circus Oz has got in melbourne and and up there you've, you've had Flipside circus which is which is um a great youth youth arts organization and and w- when you've got a great space then and that with people willing to have artists come in and, and, and make work, then great things can happen. And all these companies that we're talking about, are, I mean, we, everyone knows each other. We all, you know, we're all, and it's same in Melbourne, everyone, everyone knows each other, we're all mates. And so if there's, a, there's an in, invitation, doors are open and we all try and work together in, in scheduling and times, things can, great things can happen. So, yeah, it's about creating a hub. 
Yeah, and it, it's not just that the circus people in Brisbane all know each other and the circus people in Melbourne are all mates. As you said, it's the circus community kind yeah. of around the country, everybody seems to know each other. Rob, you're leaving the Australian circus community. I am. <laughs> I am. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm absconding. Um, <laughs> you're going off to join uh, the, 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 the bigger juggernaut. The beast. Yeah. Yeah. Cirque yeah, du Soleil. So I'm, I'm off to work with Cirque du Soleil. Um, it was a, you know, it was a timely... Um, opportunity that arrived on my doorstep, which I've decided to take. So I'm, I'll be working as the artistic director on a big ice uh, arena show, um, which will be doing a lot of uh, international touring. So no experience with ice skating. Um, so that'll be my learning curve. Yeah. So what do you think uh, is the legacy that you will leave behind at Circus Oz once you've moved on? Because you've only been there for three years. Um, I, th- I think the legacy, re- oh, what I hope, you know, my perception of what I've left will be maybe different to how other people perceive it, but it was really about trying to break down the barriers and leaving um, fertile ground for for the next uh, artistic team, artistic director and uh, executive producer to come in and, I guess, shape the real the future of Oz. Um, you know, I, I really feel like there was... Um, you know, part of my remit was to have, you know, reassess, you know, do we need to do one show? Can we do more than one show? Can we diversify our offerings? What does collaboration really mean? Um, and I feel like we've done that well. And, um, yeah, it's really time for, for someone else to embrace it. And we'll see where it goes next. Now, earlier we were talking about the idea of nostalgia uh, as an aesthetic for Company 2, but also something that's being explored in uh, Wonder Age. But it struck me also, thinking about it, that nostalgia is something that has... It's not to say it's a currently a, a trend in the circus sector, but I'm thinking of the success of something like the Flying Fruit Flies Junk, for example, mm. which is very much kind of focused on the games we used to play as kids back in the day and so forth. There is a nostalgia around circus, and I wonder whether that's because for the public so much of... One, as kids, often your first experience of live performance might be a circus show or something like that. Uh, do you think that's one of the reasons why kind of nostalgia as an aesthetic not just pervades your mm. company but mm. is perhaps something that circus can regularly tap back into. Yeah, I think I think dreaming of yesteryear is is something that we all do, you know, of times gone by and and also of um of an era that that you never existed in. So, you know, for instance in in, in some of the other shows, it, you know, it could be the 1920s or it could be, you know, the 1950s. It I think there's something about uh and, and even on, on, on in other arts mediums and you know film TV, like there there is something that I, I, as an audience myself personally, I I, I look back at that and I, and I with, with with shiny eyes, I guess, and, and and going, wow, I wonder what it was like back then, and oh, how great was that, and yeah, and then of times when you're a child, you, and seeing that it brings out that inner child, and I think that's all part of it, all part of that whole mix. Mm. Yeah, and so you know, certainly for me. Yeah, one of my fir- absolutely one of my first um, live performance experiences was in a circus tent, you know, hot circus tent in <laughs> Queensland somewhere. Um, but uh, yeah, there is a, there is definitely a nostalgia, and when when you know, even in two thousand and nineteen, when we talk, you know, to a uh, to someone, and I, I say I work in circus, you know, obviously the, the all the cliches uh, are thrown up straight o- straight away. So there is, um, I guess, a very strong hold on what even circus as a medium is already in the, I guess, the collective mind is quite nostalgic. Mm. 
I've been chatting with Kane Peterson from Company 2 and Rob Tanyan, the outgoing Artistic Director of Circus Oz. Guys, thanks for coming in. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Three Triple R. It's just the right time to be quietly melancholy, which is what kind of sad for smart people, as someone once described it. I'm joined in the studio by my next guest, who uh, is a soprano, an opera singer, an actress, a cabaret performer, uh, and seems to happily bounce her way around the world. Ali McGregor, welcome to Triple R. Thank you so much for having me on. Very great pleasure. Now, you're performing in the Victorian opera production of A Little Night Music, which is Stephen Sondheim. Yes. Uh, Sondheim is notoriously difficult as a kind of in terms of the challenges he presents singers and orchestras and conductors, but he's also enormously admired. For you as a performer, mm-hmm. what's the, the appeal of Sondheim? Uh, it's interesting. I hadn't realised until this piece and looking back over sometimes other work, other shows that I'm familiar with, just how well he writes for women. It's it's actually kind of incredible and I've been reading a little bit about it and and uh, looking at how, um, like with Gypsy, was probably the start of this, just reimagining how women are presented in musical theatre. So often the story was told where, you know, all it's really only your relationship to... To, to the man in the piece that makes any difference. Sondheim has this is uh, unbelievable way of writing three-dimensional characters and I think every woman in, in this piece has has a, a real narrative and a real story to tell. And for my character, Desiree Armfield, there's also the relationship between her and her mother and her and her daughter, which for me is this beautiful little linchpin of the piece. Um, yes, he's... he's his, uh, his lyrics are difficult to learn because he never repeats anything. There's no such thing as like a chorus that has the same lyrics time after time. But like with anything that is uh, a challenge, it's extremely satisfying when you actually kind of get to that the point where you can start just really delivering things like their second nature. Now, the, the show itself, A Little Night Music, is based on an Ingmar Bergman comedy of manners yes. uh, and set in Sweden in 1900. And your character, Desiree, is at, what, at the centre of a, a web of passion and affairs and there's a, a lot going on and a lot to try and unpick. It's not a straightforward narrative. No, it's not a straightforward narrative anyway, thank God. <laughs> uh, but, no, it's, it's it all centres around, um, well, the second act certainly centres around this weekend in the country and all the goings on and it's it's look it's familiar territory I guess certainly for a lot of operas you have a lot of kind of comedy of errors happening over you know in one house on one night and and bedroom swapping and all sorts of things like that it certainly has that but I think yeah then if you scratch the surface of that sort of farcical uh you know all these little lovers trysts then there's there's a lot of deeper stuff going on which is is kind of thrilling but I guess also being set in Sweden you have this sense of those long nights those long white nights in a sense uh and there's even something that nancy hayes character madame armfeld says about you know you should never trust a scandinavian because they're all insane because of those those long nights the long summer nights and the very very short winter days and there's this this that certainly has an effect i think on the piece now it's a Musically, it's complex. I was just doing some reading about it. The fact that it contains everything from patter songs to there's even a, like a dramatic quintet in it. So there is a Greek people's... chorus of sorts. Yeah. So he's. It's an ambitious piece of music, kind of oh, an ambitious 
kind of musical, musically, I guess. Uh, musically, absolutely. But but the other thing that's remarkable about it is that in some ways it's actually just a theatre play that has some music attached to it. Um, and certainly for me, this feels very much like this is a play. Um, there is some music, but but the play seems to be the driving thing. The, the Greek chorus... Um, a very operatic in nature. The the music is operatic, but then the the stru- and they almost sort of tell. It's very great chorus. They tell the sort of narrative. They they do all sort of a lot of the exposition, a lot of the sort of what's going on in these characters' minds is told by by this uh, Liebeslingers, as they're called. And then the other cast are all singing in a slightly more musical theatre way. Um, and then big bulks of it is just Hugh Wheeler's amazing text, this play. Uh, so it's so many different things all in one piece, which is fabulous because, you know, if you... Uh, you know, it's been done by an opera company and there absolutely is a real operatic sensibility. But if, you, if you're thinking, oh, I don't like musical theatre, but I'm a big fan of opera, great, you're, you're in for a treat. If you think, oh, I can't stand opera, I really love musical theatre, great, this is for you. <laughs> and if you don't like any of that and you just really want to see some theatre, awesome, you're in for a treat. So, so it's... Kicking it's, a lot of boxes. It really does, yeah. It's interesting to see uh, companies like Victorian Opera doing what might be classed more as an operetta rather than kind of your, your standard... I don't know if you're allowed to use that word around Sondheim, though. <laughs> gets very angry if you use that operator word. Uh, that's more Gilbert and Sullivan, <laughs> yeah, I guess. Exactly. But the fact that it's not kind of uh, canonical opera, and we're really seeing opera companies, uh, uh, Opera Australia, are now kind of re- staging a musical, a piece of musical theatre every year. For mm-hmm. example, we're seeing uh, other companies tr- trying to like making new work. We uh, just uh, at Perth Festival there were two new operas mm-hmm. that premiered. For example, earlier this year, one about Ned Kelly, one uh, I think it was uh, Cat Hope Speechless. Yes. Um, yeah. So. Opera companies are clearly diversifying their repertoire. Do you think that's because their traditional audience is literally dying off or are they trying to kind of demonstrate that opera is vital and alive and not what you expect an opera to be? Oh, I think it's probably all of the above in a way. I have some uh, some fairly strong feelings about um, the way in which opera companies present musical theatre. I think it can be done really, really well, especially if you're... Um, I think what opera companies hold is... Um, it's really weird. The difference between musical theatre and opera in this country or in any country is, is such a weird kind of line because on paper they're kind of the same thing. You know, they're telling a story and a narrative through the art of music. But in, you know, in reality they are very different. The, the vocal production is very different. Obviously in musical theatre you always have amplified sound. In opera you do more commonly now. But but the vocal production is very different. Quite often the, the melodies and the musical arrangements is a lot more complex. And, and But there is really no reason why the two can't can't sort of coexist in a in a really close way, and in this piece we're finding it's it's remarkable. All the musical theatre actors are learning so much from the operatically trained people, and vice versa. And there's so much to kind of coexist. I, I don't really love when opera companies present musical theatre and don't cast any opera singers in it. I, I just don't see, see the point of that really. I think when opera companies like Vio have been doing in some of these Sondheim pieces that. Um, it's just the perfect crossover, I think, and and it and what I was saying before, you know, if you think you don't like opera, but you like musical theatre, this is going to be for you. And I think um, it is about bringing a new audience in. Um, and as far as the new pieces, you know, I'm not sure if you're aware, but I, I was uh, created a piece for Victorian Opera last year that Lorelei. presented Lorelei, yeah. yeah, and that was exactly that for me. I'm I, I you know coming from a cabaret after a decade of doing cabaret, which is a genre that's all about 
being in between the cracks of genres, of, of the high art genres. You know, cabaret is always little pieces that are a little bit theatre, a little bit musical theatre, a little bit theatre, a little bit dance, a little bit opera. They can be sort of anything. They fit between the cracks. And and so I'm really interested in, in creating pieces because for me, you know, that's where real stories can kind of shine. I also want to hear stories... Uh, I, I'm sort of also a believer if, if you're not feeling that there are roles for you, there are not your stories are not being told, then go out and make them and go out and tell them. And and so for me that's what Lorelei uh, was and I just knew I wanted to work with certain people and Victorian Opera were incredibly supportive at getting that made. So you made that with Casey Bonetto and Gillian Cosgrove? Yes, and Gillian Langdon who uh, composed it as well. And, uh, and then... Yeah, telling this story, a three-female cast, it was... Um, it, it didn't set out to be some sort of, you know, f- feminist uh, uh, piece, but it did end up having a sort of 70% female cast and creatives. The story was very much sort of um, trying to get that that female archetype that has been told time and time again in literature and, of course, in opera, and uh, it just... I oh, just get really bored of it, you know, and I, and the fact that, you know, the feeling that as a, as a woman you can only really be put in the little the sort of innocent box or you're the mother or you're the kind of... the, 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 the slutty old witch or something like that. And uh, we wanted to really kind of play with the idea that those those little boxes are, are just not real and, and to try and get some sort of, again, in between the cracks, I guess. Yeah. To tap into that uh, or to unpick that... Mm. Uh, the the representation of women in opera has, is there's a real push around that at the moment. Mm. It's been really fascinating. Sally Blackwood, uh, uh, Liza Lim, uh, Peggy Polis, and Brie Van Rick kind of uh, wrote co-wrote a piece looking at, after the new opera workshop in uh, that Queensland Opera did not yeah, so long Lindsay ago. Hume uh, talked at, yeah. yeah, and talking about the fact that uh, gender-based violence is almost a cornerstone or a foundational element of classic opera uh, and that it's really time for the art form to look at how it represents women but also then how it involves women as well as creatives. Absolutely. It, look, it's a really tricky question as far as uh, the historical kind of the operatic canon goes because it is so entrenched and it's something that it's kind of surprising when you look back and think, you look at all the kind of the major, you know, uh, repertoire of, and, and the amount of uh, women characters you just think that are really problematic. And I think to put them on, I mean, are we, we going to say we're not ever going to do Tosca or Traviata or any of these pieces again? Well, that would be ridiculous. They're, they're classic pieces. But I do think we have to look a little bit at how we do it. But also I think, you know, just having pieces like Lorelei, commissioning new work, um, and not just purposefully going, oh, we're only going to commission work by females, but but just to, to commission work that is telling a diverse set of stories. And I think a diverse set of racial stories, gender stories, it, it, you know, everything I, I think is important right now. We need to tell stories that we as a society um, are interested in telling and I think share stories that are unfamiliar to you. So I think as long as a, a company is balancing out some of those old repertoire pieces with these new pieces. We don't have to completely change everything. But, you know, I, I do get bored. You know, I, I was watching, oh, that Armando Iannucci, the Stalin, oh, I've just forgotten the name of it, though. And I, I love his work. This is a movie. I love all the people in the cast. But halfway through I was like, I just don't know if I can watch another piece where the only female characters in this piece 
are getting raped or killed. I just, I know it's a satire and I know it happened and it's true and there's stories that need to be told, but I just can't, I can't sit through this again. And I know this is how people of colour feel when they're just continually shown stories about the downtrodden, their downtrodden life. And yes, it is a story that needs to be told, but... Which, you know, who want to hear more there than just more that? Stories. There are more stories to tell. And yeah. so I think that's important. And I think, you know, we're seeing a huge shift. There's always there's always been a huge amount of uh, women working in um, behind the scenes in arts in arts management. You know, we've got Sandra Willis up at Opera Queensland. We've got Libby Hill at Victorian Opera. There are definitely women, um, in, you know, in major roles in programming and stuff. And there are also uh, women writing. But I think just generally across the board, we um, it's important that we just tell a more diverse set of stories in our opera companies. To come back to what we were saying at the start of the conversation about the appeal of Sondheim and the yes. fact that his female characters are kind of rich and three-dimensioned and they're not it's not just about them being in uh, in a little night music for example they have their own lives they have their own lives and they're flawed and um and i i, I love in this piece especially every every woman in the piece um is at a different stage of their life when it comes to sort of the love cycle of one's life i guess and there's definitely three generational looks you have the you know my daughter who's looking at all these people and looking at love with fresh eyes and and as it's said in the piece you know the generation that doesn't that doesn't know enough or knows too little and then you have the generation that, that i'm sort of playing at middle age where you're just foolish like and you think you kind of know everything or you certainly think you should know everything but you don't and you're just running around blind and then you have the generation later on who know too much and know that actually you never <laughs> you never know everything and so the piece is seen from these three um female uh, outlooks at different times in their life but again all the characters are uh, really layered, really three-dimensional and flawed. And I love flaws. I just think that, that you know, watching people, watching flawed people trying to scram, scramble through life is, is, uh, is, a, is a wonderful thing to witness when it's done with such a deft um, hand as Sondheim. I'm speaking with Ali McGregor, who's performing in Victorian Opera's production of A Little Night Music, which is running from the 27th of June until the 6th of July at the Playhouse in Art Centre Melbourne. Ali, as part of uh, the production, you're sending... Uh, sorry, you're sending... You're I'm sending, singing. I'm sending in the clouds. You are. I you're, am. you're singing kind of one of Sondheim's <laughs> best-known songs. Yeah. Kind of, it's one of those songs... that you. Even if you don't know Sondheim and don't know the history of music theatre, or mm. you will probably know "Send in the Clowns." It's been covered by so many great singers over the years. Is there pressure to live up to that? How do you feel when <laughs> each when you prepare to I sing? I thrive that? on pressure, Richard. What are you talking about? Um, look, I guess probably there was a little bit at the start. I, I feel like I'm so beyond that now that "Send in the Clown" and how it's written, it is. It is kind of like just an extension of um, the conversation that's being had before it, that Desiree and Frederick are having. And it's so beautifully written, it, it just kind of unfolds out of that conversation and doesn't, for me, feel like we've had our little talky bit and now I'm going to sing the big number. Well, that's what Sondheim does so beautifully. So His songs are the extensions of the drama. Yeah, absolutely. I remember, you know, Eddie Perfect and I went and saw Fun Home in New York a few years ago and I remember discussing it later and that was another piece and he said, Eddie said, 
you know, if you're watching that on CC camera with, you know, no sound on, you wouldn't be able to tell when they were singing and when they were speaking. And um, that always really stuck with me. I think that is with Sondheim, you know, they just really sort of, the song come out of the text. Sending the Clowns I never knew in context before. I'd heard, you know, Barbara Streisand singing it, Frank Sinatra. um, And on its own, it's one thing in the context of the play it is something completely different and I've made a, a kind of concerted effort not to listen to, to it too much while doing it because I did really want to just be really true to where it is coming in this character's kind of journey in the piece and it's a heartbreaking moment of her journey and something that's quite full on to relive twice a day in a rehearsal room. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. yeah, yeah it's a, such a vulnerable moment. A really vulnerable moment but again although being vulnerable is very scary it's so satisfying with the the depths of emotion you reach when you let yourself be that vulnerable um and it's something that i take with me out of that rehearsal room and and it really stays with me ali it's been a pleasure thanks for coming in thank you so much richard 40 years young and still funky three triple r this has been a podcast from three triple r 102.7 fm in melbourne Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.